Bacteria are pretty interesting creatures, if you will. They will store inside their cell food that they consume in a polymer form. Not unlike, uh, in a way, how we store excess food as fat. If we recover the dead bacterial cells and refine them into this polymer, it's, it's a plastic. It's a plastic very similar to polypropylene and polyethylene. In order for this process to work well, we need a lot of, of that particular food, a lot of organic carbon. And circling back to dairy manure, there's a lot of concentrated organic material present in dairy manure. Meet Eric Coates, a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Idaho. As you can imagine, industrial and municipal wastewater contains more than just water. And it turns out, all that extra stuff might have untapped potential. Eric hopes to use his knowledge of chemistry and engineering to extract nutrients and even plastics from our wastewater, providing extra cash for industry and municipalities and cleaning our water at the same time. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Eric and I talked about the hidden wealth in wastewater and how scientists are starting to extract it. Eric, thank you so much for calling into the podcast today. Welcome to the Vandal Theory. Can you introduce yourself real quick? Yes. Well, appreciate being here. Appreciate the uh, opportunity to podcast with you. My name is Eric Coates. I'm a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Idaho in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Now, you are here to talk about something that is sort of less than cool. Uh, you are here to talk to me about wastewater and how amazing it is. Why is wastewater amazing? Because that is not usually my first adjective that I use. Uh, indeed. And I've been asked that question probably by my wife more than a few occasions. Why, why wastewater? Why do you play with waste? Wastewater presents an interesting challenge to engineers. All of us enjoy recreating in you know, clean water. We like to fish. We like clean drinking water. But at the same time, as a developed society, whether uh, municipally, industrially, or agriculturally, our activities generate a lot of waste. It's a problem. It's a problem that engineers seek to solve, seek to develop answers to. How we might treat the wastewater, how we might recover the water, how might we might clean the water so that when it is returned to the environment, it's not harmful to the aquatic life. It's not harmful to the activities we want to enjoy when we're recreating. Well, and a number of the projects we're going to talk about today that you work on, you seem to be coming at the cleaning of our wastewater with kind of a different idea than maybe I've heard before. Instead of coming at wastewater with a regulatory stick of you're going to clean the wastewater or get fined, you seem to be coming at it from a, there's actually some good solid cash involved in this if we do this right. Uh, absolutely. The history of wastewater is very much regulatory. 
I won't rewind us in great detail back to the late 60s when rivers were on fire, uh, wastewater wasn't being treated, waters were very unclean. We didn't want to fish, we didn't want to swim, and the Clean Water Act <clears throat> came into being in the early 70s, and uh, some core terminology in the Clean Water Act was to restore our waters of the nation to fishable and swimmable conditions. And so that's the history over the past 50 years. But in the last, I'll say, decade, maybe longer than that, there has been a realization that perhaps an alternate approach would be appropriate, one where we seek value from this water stream that carries potentially valuable nutrients. And in doing so, if we can generate economic value from this raw resource, perhaps the regulatory compliance then just occurs. An excellent byproduct then. Yes. So let's talk about the first, well, one of the projects that you're working on. I've written it down as the Poop to Plastic Project. So talk to me about this. Where are you getting the wastewater for this project? And then what are you trying to get out of it? Yeah, so that's uh, my wife always, that's her, her go-to phrase, poop to plastics. <laughs> you must be a hit at dinner parties. Yes, exactly. So in Idaho, but really in, in many states, we have an important industry, the uh, dairy industry. It's a, a significant economic you know, engine in, in this state and, and in other states around the region. But cows produce a lot of wastewater, and it's very concentrated wastewater concentrated in that compared to, say, municipal wastewater, which was mostly just water, uh, there's so like a lot of water at the yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. if you think about municipal wastewater, you know, it's what's going down, what's leaving our house. And a lot of that is fairly clean shower water, tub water, you know, sink water. It's just a lot of water. There's not a lot of, there's contamination, but not near as much. But we talk about dairies, you know, cows, and it's it's just very concentrated. And so, of course, the dairy industry, my general understanding is, you know, it's a perishable product and, uh, you know, no shelf life of consequence uh, and the margins are tight. And so how do we help the dairy industry diversify economically while uh, mitigating, minimizing the impact of dairy manure? That was sort of the partially the genesis of this poop to plastic project. So bacteria, because I do all of my research, all my studies are biologically based. Bacteria are pretty interesting creatures, if you will. They will store inside their cell food that they consume in a polymer form. Not unlike, uh, in a way, how we store excess food as fat. If we recover the dead bacterial cells and refine them this polymer, it's, it's a plastic. It's a plastic very similar to polypropylene and polyethylene. In order for this process to work well, we need a lot of, of that particular food, a lot of organic carbon. And circling back to dairy manure, there's a lot of concentrated organic material present in dairy manure. So if we can capture that dairy manure, we can ferment that dairy manure, similar to how we you know, ferment. Most people think of fermentation and alcohol, but we're using bacteria. They produce a different type of organic stream uh, that's uh, similar to vinegar. Bacteria will ferment organic matter to produce acetic acid. And when we feed that to these other bacteria, they'll store it. 
So why dairy manure? A lot of carbon. Need to solve a problem. Why bacteria? Why wastewater? Well, they've developed this crazy ability to store it in a way that just so happens to be a plastic for us. Nice. And you guys have proven that this works at this point, correct? We have. We've uh, studied it extensively in the lab uh, in a variety of scales, and we have a 24-foot trailer full of tanks and pumps and piping and, and have demonstrated it at, I think we're, I don't know, 200-gallon tanks. I, I forget the exact size. But yeah, we've scaled it up to a pilot level uh, and demonstrated that it works well. And what's crazy about it, in some ways, it's really quite simple uh, once you ferment the dairy manure and you get these organic acids, the bacteria will store almost all of it if you operate the system correctly. Uh, they'll store almost all of it as this polymer that has material properties that are plastic-like. And do you imagine these as being, I don't know, like one-time use plastics or are they biodegradable? Like where would they fall in the uh, use of plastics? Yes, it's an important uh, consideration to, to make here. It is, first and foremost, the plastic that we recover from the bacterial cell. And of course, we're calling it plastic. The bacteria, it's just food and energy source. But it has material properties that are very, very similar to polypropylene and polyethylene. And the neat thing about it is we can engineer the system in different ways to produce different types of plastic materials. Oh, cool. Like tweak the chemistry and get a slightly different product? Exactly. So we can produce different types of polyethylene. We can shift it to polypropylene. And of course, because this polymer came from bacteria and because this polymer is a food source for bacteria, it is biodegradable. It's biologically based and it's biodegradable plastic. So that's one of the neat things about it. Uh, and so applications, we are in the early stages of trying to you know, develop some pathways here. I've long thought that planter pots might be an option. I don't know if it's economical. We haven't put together a business plan around that yet. But it's always troubled me when I go to the nursery and I buy a tree or a shrub to plant in my yard and I ended up throwing away these black polyethylene pots, right? It just seems like yeah, yeah. a tremendous waste of oil. So if we could instead make biodegradable pots, you would just plant the whole thing in the ground and it would eventually biodegrade. How awesome is that? And it works with the poop to plastic pots alliteration. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so I'm working with a polymer chemist here on campus, Armando McDonald. He's over in our College of Natural Resources. He is evaluating purification options and he's evaluating some uh, different ways that we might actually be able to make films out of it. We're thinking some agricultural films, possibly, that part of the technology is still in development. But, you know, the, the plastic itself, particularly if we refine it, if we purify it and get rid of all the bacterial cell mass, it can replace many conventional petroleum-based plastics. The challenge, of course, is not that it would be harmful to humans, but we're not going to choose a pathway that would gross people out. Yeah, yeah, you have to sell this stuff. I mean... Yeah, like, you know, toothbrushes, no. Um, <laughs> Probably not the best marketing strategy. Uh, disposable uh, razors, why not? Milk jugs, no, not doing that. We'll have to be thoughtful in the application. But 
there's a lot of single-use plastic out there, and there's a lot of applications that people wouldn't be troubled at all about this being the source of this plastic. And of course, it's a perk for the dairy industry. It's one more place to make money. Yeah, yeah. You know, even if a dairyman was just no longer needing to manage their manure, that, that in and of itself is a big deal. It's a cost to manage. The bigger vision here is waste into a process. Process produces a product of value. Effluent from that process feeds into another process, which produces another product of value, etc. We just, just roll down on the line. Well, so speaking of that idea, uh, I'd love to jump into your next project that you've been working on, which is sort of in the same vein of wanting to recover something from wastewater. And in this case, it's phosphorus and nitrogen. You've been working on that, correct? Correct. And why do we want to pull phosphorus and nitrogen out of the water? So it's more the phosphorus. Nitrogen is readily available in the atmosphere. Phosphorus is an important macronutrient to human life, to agricultural operations, uh, but we have to mine it from the earth. About 15% of the phosphorus we mine, uh, the number I've read in the literature, ends up in wastewater. That's a significant amount of phosphorus. Unlike nitrogen, which in wastewater treatment, we ultimately convert it to nitrogen gas back to the atmosphere. Phosphorus just leaves in the effluent, and future generations may be quite challenged in capturing phosphorus from rivers, lakes, streams, estuaries. Similar to the poop to plastic, you know, nature has found a way to concentrate you know, macronutrients, phosphorus being a macronutrient. So you know, if we operate a wastewater treatment process, and in this case, I'm, I'm mostly focused on municipal applications. If we operate these treatment facilities in a certain way, the bacteria will remove over 99% of the phosphorus that's present in the wastewater stream entering the treatment facility. So rather than discharging it to the water environment, we capture it in the biomass. We now have an accessible fertilizer. And by removing phosphorus from the water environment, we've minimized damage to the environment. People are familiar with algal-filled waterways, well, a lot of that is caused by excess phosphorus in the water. So we, we capture phosphorus for a fertilizer and we prevent it from entering the environment where it can cause harm. Are we talking a bacteria is, is taking this out? And where's the sort of the engineering challenge of making sure that this process works? So it, so it is bacteria. Um, and similar to our poop to plastic process, it's naturally occurring bacteria. We do not work with anything genetically modified. If it can't survive in a complex wastewater environment, we don't really have any interest in utilizing it. The process of phosphorus removal, the engineered process is called biological phosphorus removal. That's the, the name that we would give it in, in, in my world. The process is utilized around the world. The city of Moscow operates it. The city of Boise operates biological phosphorus removal. One of the challenges we face as engineers is process stability. In particular, biological phosphorus removal does experience process instability issues that are not necessarily foreseen. And when they happen, we don't necessarily understand what happened. 
And when they recover, we don't always know why they recovered. Interestingly, it's a lot more complicated than producing bioplastics. In the poop to plastic, we just force the bacteria to gorge themselves on carbon. With phosphorus, they have to be, bacteria have to cycle around different environments we engineer. And in going between these different environments, they ultimately will remove, like I said, 99% plus of the phosphorus in the water. But the you know operational criteria, the design criteria for those environments still are not sufficiently well understood for all engineers to you know embrace the process. Engineers are we're just we're cautious people. When we seal engineering documents, uh, our license goes along with it. And so caution is warranted. And so we need to better understand the process dynamics, operational criteria, and what might make the process fail and, and how we might recover it. So that's, that's what we're studying. The last project that I wanted to talk to you about is a little different than the previous two. And it's come up over the last year. You and your team have been working on testing wastewater for the virus that causes COVID-19. First off, I guess we've got the sticking up the nose to test for (laughs) COVID-19. We've got ways of singular testing. Why test wastewater? You know, if we're strictly relying on individuals volunteering or otherwise deciding to get tested, by the time we have that data available, it's likely too late. You're going in because you feel sick or... Yes. Yeah. Most people don't go to the doctor until they feel ill. And at that point, given what we know about COVID-19, you may have been asymptomatic for some period of time. You, You could have been a candidate to spread it. We know that it spreads easily. COVID-19 is just, it's a numbers game. It may only be one, one and a half percent fatal, but if there's a lot of infections, that's a big number. A number of research groups across the country, around the world, have gotten ahead of this wastewater surveillance. It's a potential early warning device. If you're ill, if if you've contracted SARS-CoV-2, but you're asymptomatic or, yeah, I guess early stages of an infection, you will shed the virus in your waste. Most typically through your gastrointestinal tract, it'll end up in fecal matter. And so the beauty, if you will, of (laughs) testing, you know, wastewater, words I might not normally pair together, is it's not invasive. It doesn't demand that large swaths of the population go and get clinically tested. You know, we're able to potentially identify the uh, emergence of, a, of an infection in a community uh, well in advance of what clinical testing might reveal. So what can you and can you not learn from this? Can you learn like the dorms upstream of this testing point, stuff's going up, stuff's going down? Or can yep. you say like, we can estimate that 100 people upstream have COVID-19? Like where does it begin so- and end? So we cannot do what you, the, the latter. Some of the early testing coming out of a private company out of uh, Massachusetts was, they were publishing estimates of how many infected individuals were in a sewer shed, but there was no good science behind those numbers. There is no accurate 
number for the quantity of virus an infected individual will shed. Moreover, how much one sheds will vary over time. And so there's really no way to estimate how many people. The approach is to test frequently and to look for trends. We can measure the concentration of the virus in wastewater. And is the concentration increasing? Is it holding steady? Is it decreasing? Uh, That's what we've done, certainly on campus, uh, where we've had pretty concentrated sources uh, with residence halls and Greek areas, uh, but we're also doing testing for the city of Moscow. It's information that's valuable to decision makers to help them if things are trending the wrong direction, like here on campus. Uh, I know the administration altered plans in some occasions based on the data we generated and had certain Greek areas or residence halls tested, and they did they did identify infected individuals that otherwise likely would have not been caught early enough and could have led to greater spread across our community. Well, is there anything else that you would like us to know about wastewater? You know, engineers, it doesn't matter, mechanical, civil, chemical, we solve problems. I just find the application of microbiology to solve wastewater, waste management problems fascinating. Uh, the microbiology, the biochemistry, you know, this wastewater surveillance is, is different, is new to me. Uh, and and I, I should give a plug for our team because it's Dr. Eva Topp in biological sciences, Dr. Thibaut Stalder in biological sciences, Dr. Aaron Mack also in biological sciences, and then uh, Cynthia Brinkman, who's my research scientist. It's been a fun team effort to work with the the biologists, but for us, it's more of a service. Like, how can we help the community, even at the university level, how can we generate useful data to help people make better decisions regarding public health? Excellent. Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate it. If you found the intricacies of Eric's work interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. Working on an Icelandic volcano, geologist Erica Rader and her colleagues used instrumentation similar to those available on Mars rovers to characterize what geological features are most likely linked to high microbial abundance and diversity. They suggested a sampling strategy for looking for hints of microbes on Mars. Whammy faculty were awarded a $99,000 National Institutes of Health grant to explore the underlying causes of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. The study will help improve understanding of the interaction between diet and the gut's microbiome and the host. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, children from one Idaho school district are getting plenty of fresh air and teacher time. Beginning in September 2020, 100 K-5 students from the McCall-Donnelly School District learned science at the McCall Outdoor Science School. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory to get more information about Eric's research, read our show notes, and email me with comments. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And please rate and review us too. We've loved hearing from our listeners and we really appreciate your support. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.